Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm uh, your host, Jeff Bloodworth. Uh, You know why I think I – I got to confess why I I think I love politics and the study of politics so much. You know, it's kind of like um, People Magazine or a soap opera where the stakes actually matter. And – Maybe it's just me, but I suspect there's a lot of people who are really interested in, in, in politics um, and in you know foreign policy and all these issues that, that really matter. But at the same time, we also really enjoy delving into the, the personal nitty-gritty <laughs> embarrassing episodes of, uh, of the highfalutin. And it's sort of, you know, rather, I think we'd be embarrassed to, like, read People magazine or the National Enquirer. But somehow it makes it okay if we're going to read a biography and we're delving into the alcoholism of a Winston Churchill. You know, the the speculation of whether Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena uh, Hickok actually had some sort of uh, homosexual affair. That's what makes this week's book, I think, especially... Um, fascinating and interesting. Um, it's uh, Bill Chafe, the esteemed historian from Duke University, has penned uh, Bill and Hillary, The Politics of the Personal. And in this book, uh, what Professor Chafe has done is he has looked into kind of an inside-out sort of book. He's, he's looking at the inner lives of Bill and Hillary Clinton. And Gosh, we all know that um, their interior lives have more than a bit of, uh, I don't know, controversy and intrigue. And and he's using that to explain their sort of, you know, public consequences, public policy choices, and, and political outcomes. And so this is just a really fine book for anyone interested in the Clinton presidency, the history of the 1990s, or just looking for a great read, and, and, and even more than that, a whole new way of maybe doing uh, biography and, and, and political history. Because what you know Professor Chafe has done is not just give us yet another sort of, oh, here are the 1990s, here are the greatest hits. He's really looking at sort of Bill and Hillary Clinton's early lives and their marriage, and how that mattered in explaining the the, the trajectory of the Clinton presidency and, and beyond, as Hillary Clinton is still an active um, political figure, uh, maybe potential uh, aspirant for the White House in 2016. Anyway, um, I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Professor Chafe, and uh, I urge you to listen and go out and buy the book. Professor Chafee. Hey, this is uh, Jeff Bloodworth. Welcome to uh, New Books and Politics. Thank you. Hey, thanks for doing this. Um, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about your um, you know, educational and professional background? Well, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, but I was not uh, affiliated with the university, except that my grandfather was a night watchman there and my grandmother was a cafeteria worker there. Uh, but I was not connected to the academic life uh, there. 
but I uh, enjoyed growing up there, and my uh, my college plans were dictated by the fact that my my grandparents were willing to pay the tuition if I went to Harvard rather than Brown or Tufts. Hmm. Uh, I did that and um, <clears throat> had a great experience there, primarily because of the extraordinary professors we had, like Paul Tillich and Tom Pettigrew and people like that. But most of my experience in learning there came with uh, talking with my college classmates about what we just heard in class, because you didn't really get a chance to meet very many professors uh, close up, uh, hmm. given how large the classes were. Um, I had always been involved in the church, uh, the American Baptist Youth Conference, uh, and that's how I first became involved in issues of social justice and issues like that. And I went to uh, I went to Union Seminary for a year after college on a Rockefeller Theological Fellowship for those who were interested in the ministry but didn't know they were going to pursue it, if, hmm. if they were going to pursue it. Um, so I did that for one year, uh, decided that was not the place for me. Uh, the church I was working in on Long Island didn't want me to talk about civil rights with my youth group, so I decided that if I couldn't do that, then I wasn't going to be involved in that church very much. Hmm. Uh, and then I uh, taught high school for two years uh, at a private school in New York, where the students were essentially um, four years younger than I was, but they didn't know that. Um, I had a great time doing that, teaching American history, comparative religion, and philosophy, and then went to Columbia, um, where I was working with Bill Luckenberg and hmm. pursued my work on issues of race and gender. Well, you know, I got to tell you, um, my undergraduate education was filled uh, with your books. Ah, <laughs> Actually, great. yeah. What's uh, Paradox of Change? Yes. Yes, I, re I remember that book. And I remember also you came, uh, it was then called Southwest Missouri State, and I believe it was 1994, and you gave a talk. And uh -huh. I, I still remember this. There was a kind of a heckler in the audience, and he called you, I believe he called you a socialist, maybe rather than a communist. Okay. <laughs> and, and you corrected him, and you said, no, 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 I'm a liberal. I believe that's what you said. And I, I still remember this line. You said, language is important. I remember mm -hmm. that exactly. And, uh, uh -huh. I, uh, and it was, uh, for some reason, that just stuck with me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I remember it being very good talk. So uh, I think that's I'm good. like tens of th now, you know, thousands. Tell me exactly where Southwest Missouri is. Um, Southwest Missouri State is in Springfield, Missouri. Okay. It's now Missouri okay. State University. I, I, Jim yeah. Giglio, the Kennedy mm -hmm. Scholars there. I, but yeah. I, I think it was 1994 that you were there. Yeah, um, probably was. Yeah. I became dean in 95, so I probably wouldn't have done it in 95. <laughs> Understood. Deans have too much work to do. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I would have loved to have done it, but maybe I couldn't have. <laughs> this, I anyway, thought, go ahead. Yeah, I started reading this uh, in the middle of the week. Um, and this is... This is really a fabulous book. I Thank mean, you. as I was reading it, you know, I thought, you know, I, I, I specialize in the, you know, in the history of American liberalism, contemporary American liberalism. And so, of course, this is right in my wheelhouse. But yes. I thought, you know, someone could say, oh, my goodness, why do we not need a, yet another book on, on, on the Clintons? Right. And but the thing is, is that your book is so different, it seems to me, in that it's the way I thought about it. It's it's inside out rather mm -hmm. than outside in. I mean, you're talking yeah. about their sort of very personal lives and how yeah. it influences policy. 
And mm-hmm. I thought that, you know, this is a very different kind of book. And maybe you could mm-hmm. just talk about, um, you know, the, the subtitle, the politics of the personal sure. and, and, and sort sure. of your lens. Yeah, I think that that's a very important question. You know, I, I, as you will know from the preface, I, I asked myself the question, or I asked this question publicly, why would someone who's written about social movements from the bottom up involving gender and race suddenly end up writing about the president and the first lady? Uh, sounds like a contradiction in terms, but then when you go back and think about it, and you realize that I started writing about the women's movement uh, in, the, in the early 1970s, and of course the theme of the feminist movement was the personal is political, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that idea has always been with me. And then I started writing about the origins of the civil rights movement, and I wrote about the four students who led the sit-ins in Greensboro in 1960, and you know how those four individuals changed history. And why do they change their history, change history? Well, largely because of who they were and how they've been raised, the fact that their parents imparted a sense of pride to them, their teachers at the all-black high school uh, told them to stand up for themselves and be the best people they could be, that their minister at church talked about the social gospel. And then they went to a youth group that had been started by Ella Baker in 1943 uh, to talk about <clears throat> issues of race. So they basically made the decisions they made because of who they were as individuals, mm-hmm. how they'd been raised, uh, what they brought to this this moment in time. And, of course, what they did was literally to change history because within nine weeks of their demonstrations, you had similar sit-ins taking place in 54 cities in nine different states. So that led me to the whole question of okay, what makes individuals shape history? And I was also very intrigued, as, as you will understand from hearing my lecture in 1994, <laughs> very intrigued with the idea of um, why do some people stay liberals, remain liberals, and want to work within the system, <laughs> while other people decide it's the system itself is the problem, and that needs to be overthrown, and they become radicals. <laughs> and so I decided that the best way to examine that was by looking at the most outstanding liberal activist of um, the 60s and 70s, um, and trying to see how he pushed the envelope but still stayed inside the envelope. Yeah. And that was Alan Lowenstein. Yeah. And of course, I did not know at that moment what I was going to find when I started doing the research, but Lowenstein clearly had been instrumental in bringing attention of the world to the, to the apartheid system in South Africa. Mm-hmm. He had recruited the white volunteers to go south and freedom vote uh, in, from Stanford and Yale and Harvard in the fall of 63. And then it was really his idea and Bob Moses' idea to do Freedom Summer in 64, uh, which transformed uh, the Civil Rights Movement and led directly to the enactment of the Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Rights Act. But he always stayed inside the system. I was trying to figure out why. And, of course, he ran for Congress ten times. <laughs> and uh, one was always struck by how peripatetic he was. Yeah. And then I discovered, of course, that the reason his whole politics were as they were was because of the personal demons he was fighting with. Mm-hmm. Um, he was fighting with his family, uh, who never let him know until he was age 14 that his mother had died before he was one. He was fighting with the fact that uh, he felt uncomfortable with his, his Jewish identity in New York, and so went to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to college. But above all, he was fighting with the fact that when he was 14 years old, he discovered that he was sexually attracted to boys, not girls. Uh, and yet you couldn't talk about that or even think about that uh, at the time he was growing up. 
because uh, this is the middle of World War II. Um, and so basically he uh, is running all the way to try to escape these dilemmas. Uh, and yet he runs in, in, in conjunction with all these young men who he's recruiting to the movement uh, and spending the night with uh, various places along the way. Mm-hmm. So basically that highlights to me the whole significance of the personality in determining and shaping the politics of a person. And so I then went on and wrote a book called Private Lives, Public Consequences, which is a series of essays starting with one on, on Franklin and Eleanor and ending with one on Bill and Hillary. And that book, I'd already done a lot of work on Franklin and Eleanor, so there's a lot of primary research there. But what that book highlighted for me was the fact that there was this incredible story to be told about Bill and Hillary Clinton and the way in which their personalities were essential to understanding uh, the politics they pursued, and that their relationship and its personal chemistry really shaped every step of of their political uh, careers. And without Hillary, Bill would never have been elected president. Without Bill, Hillary would never have been able to exercise the power she did. So that became the basis for trying to understand the entire nature of... um, how the political is the personal. Yeah, it's it's interesting um, because it seems that, you know, some – just because I wanted to ask you a question about biography as a sort of a form of writing. But it mm-hmm. seems that, you know, even if you didn't enjoy writing biography, it just sounds like you couldn't conceive of a different way <laughs> to um, to write about these subjects rather than, you know, yeah. in a bi- biographical sense. It's- well, I think that's true. I think that in this, in particular in, the, in this instance, um, uh, there's no way you can write about either Clinton without talking about their personalities yeah. and then, of course, the way they interact with each other. The same thing, I think, really would be true of a lot of people. But Franklin Roosevelt, uh, you know, if, if Roosevelt had not experienced the extraordinary struggle he did with polio uh, in 1922. It's very difficult to imagine the way in which he would have dealt with um, the crisis of the Great Depression. I mean, he learned a sense of strength of character during that battle that was instrumental in the way in which he handled politics thereafter. Um, you know, I don't believe John F. Kennedy would have said no to the military in terms of bombing Cuba uh, had it not been for his experience in World War II with the military and his frustration and anger at the way in which they had uh, given orders and led to the sinking of PT-109 and the disaster of his of his crew, so I just think that that that, that uh, it's it's very hard to get at many of these things without looking at what's going on inside the person as well as what's going on in the larger political world. Yeah, I mean, I, I consider myself a biographer I have one coming out and I'm starting on another one and um and what you do so nicely in this book um you know is you you know you devote you know a significant amount of time to the early years of both Bill Clinton and Hillary yes. and I think at least um most people know a little bit about um Bill Clinton's early years um mm-hmm. but I got to admit I didn't know I just assumed you know, uh, you know that Hillary Clinton's early life was mm-hmm. so much more placid <laughs> than, yeah. than what you sort of uh, depict. And maybe you could yeah. just talk about that a little bit. I found, sure. yeah. Well, you know, I think that uh, that's true. I mean, and of course, she portrays; uh, she really obscures her early life and her and her autobiography, living history. Um, 
I think she wants basically not to confront some of the negatives. Hmm. But, you know, her mother is so pivotal. Her mother is an extraordinary person. Yeah. Um, you know, born to a 15-year-old girl and a 17-year-old boy, uh, sent, sent back to Chicago from Los Angeles alone on the train with her three-year-old brother uh, when she's eight years old, hmm. uh, never having any kind of real love and nurturance in her background, hmm. um, and then finally getting this job as a secretary in this lace curtain manufacturing company and marrying the boss. Um, and yet he's a, you know, he's a, he's a gruff kind of arbitrary and not sensitive person Mm -hmm. who is a a loner and doesn't really talk to very many people and, um, basically argues with his wife all the time and, and, uh, essentially treats her like, like, like dirt, but she's, she's basically unwilling to give up her family and the kids uh, by seeking a divorce, even though she argues with them all the time. And that's the lesson she teaches her daughter. You know, there's nothing more important than keeping the family together. Hmm. Divorce is not even to be considered. Hmm. And, you know, that's a lesson that obviously is relevant to the rest of Hillary's life. Sure. Um, and so I think that, you know, and of course her mother is also a liberal. Her father's a conservative. Her mother's a strong social gospel Methodist. Hmm. Uh, and that th- those things turn around Hillary's life. I mean, her experience in her youth group in, in college, uh, I mean, in high school, rather, is pivotal to the direction she takes in politics. Hmm. And her mother's strength of character is powerful in giving her the backbone to stand up to people around her if they try to suppress her. So it's all really kind of amazing. <clears throat> and then, you know, the critical decision she has to make, um, which she finally does make in 75, two years after Bill first proposes to her, is you know whether she wants to to embark on her career to transform America on her own, or whether she wants to do it as part of this team. And in 1972, you know when Betsy Wright, her colleague in San Antonio, tells her that you know she's going to be the first woman president, and she has this extraordinary ability. Hmm. Um, I mean, Hillary believes that, yeah. but she also has to face the reality that in 1972 women still were struggling to have anything like an even break. And they certainly had no significant political power in their own right. I mean, if it, if it had been 15 years later, she probably would have said, I'm going to go, go for this by myself. Hmm. But in 72, that was an unrealistic proposition. And she decided it was, uh, it was worth taking the risk, uh, even though she already knew that Bill had these tendencies towards philandering. <laughs> yeah. uh, she decided it was worth taking the risk for them to uh, joined this partnership together because they, they did love each other, uh, and they complemented each other beautifully because uh, she was focused and disciplined, and he was all over the place and friendly with the, with the entire world. Um, <laughs> and so basically she decided that it was better that they could take a chance of doing it together than to try to do it uh, individually. Yeah, I've, 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 and then I was really, I'm sure this has been written about somewhere many, many times, but I've not read it before. At uh, when she gave the commencement address at Wellesley, yes. and yes. she took on um, Edward Brooke. Ed Brooke. Ah. Ed Brooke, yeah. I, I, that, go ahead, that's please. That's an amazing act of uh, courage on her part. Yeah. You know, and, and it had to be spontaneous. I mean, she already had her own speech written out, and it was kind of a, um, a glib counterculture speech mm-hmm. that you would expect from someone in 1969 uh, coming out of that kind of and, and milieu. Uh, 
but she really was offended by what she took to be Brooks's condescending attitude toward youthful activism. Yeah. And so she just took him on, you know. And that gets her in Life magazine. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it makes a huge impact. Uh, it's kind of fascinating, I think, that she did that. But it also speaks to that kind of dimension of her character, that she's tough. Yeah. Uh, she's not going to take crap from anybody. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's that's who she is. And she certainly just never takes it from Bill. You know, she keeps in, in law school, and they're, after they finally meet, she's always saying, for God's sake, Bill, get to the point. <laughs> <laughs> Great, you know? Yeah, I mean, what I really liked about this book is that, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this, I mean, is that a lot of what people have um, kind of claimed from the outside, oh, you know, it, you know, the, some of the conventional wisdom of the Bill and Hillary dynamics, I mean, what would you go about is you sort of like actually give it some substance, you know, mm-hmm. you just prove some conventional wisdom, but then you you buttress some conventional wisdom, which seems to me up to this point was largely just kind of speculation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and so by coming from the inside out, you're, it, it makes it more just sort of I don't, more than gossip. And, and, and it, you know, we learn a lot about yeah. about the, the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. I mean, what did you what surprised you about about, about Clinton's childhood? You know, I think most uh, people which, know a little which, bit. Which one? Bill I'm sorry, Bill. Bill, Bill, Bill Clinton's childhood. I think what surprised me most about, about, about his childhood is the degree to which uh, his mother totally repressed the negative. Mm, yeah. I mean, you know, her own metaphor in her autobiography of spending 90 minutes putting makeup on every mm. morning in order to hide who she really was. Yeah. And, you know, she comes right out and says that. And then the way in which she insists on looking only on the bright side of things. I mean, there, that helps to explain a little bit why she never finds out that Bill Blythe, their first husband, was married three times before, mm-hmm. why she never finds out that he didn't really, uh, never really was a salesman, uh, and that's why she never finds out that Roger Clinton, her second husband, uh, was married four times and had multiple kids. You know, she, she, she basically is only looking on the bright side. And so she's not really ready and able to deal with the pathology in her own family. And, of course, that's where Bill becomes the, the family hero, the rescuer, yeah. the person who tries to make things right. Um, but, you know, the she doesn't really confront what she had been responsible for or been part of until her son Roger's arrest for mm. uh, drug trading and for drug addiction in the middle of the 80s when Bill was governor and then only at Hillary's insistence, really, do they go into this family therapy thing where she finally has to acknowledge the pathology of the entire damn relationship in the family. So yeah. Virginia is a trip and a half. <laughs> She's fascinating. She yeah. really is. I mean, you know, and then the lot, you know, is she dying? Everyone knows she's dying. She goes to Las Vegas to see Barbara Streisand. Uh, on New Year's Eve, she comes home basically ready to die. The last time she talks with Bill for three hours, they never talk about the fact that she's going to die. Hmm. You know, it's just like it's just like he too is uh, can't bring himself to confront the reality of what's going on, so even how though much, he knows it. How much of a reflection of of Bill, um, you know, for it, of, of Virginia is Bill Clinton? I think a lot of the. Uh, 
the kind of schizophrenic life. Mm. You know, that there are two, there, there are, you know, in his, in his, uh, my life, Bill, his autobiography, Bill talks about having these parallel lives and mm. secrets. Well, I think that's a very lovely, that's a very insightful metaphor. He does have parallel lives. Uh, his parallel lives oftentimes have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. And so he actually is able to use that in some ways as a convenient excuse for his totally outrageous behavior. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the number of women he has on a one-night stand while he's governor, uh, and then whatever goes on in the White House until before Monica Lewinsky, but certainly Monica Lewinsky, I mean, it is, it is like there are, there's, there's two people who have nothing to do with each other. Hmm. But then what he ends up doing is using the parallel lines as a kind of rationale to excuse himself. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe you should, could talk a little bit about, um, I mean, this is something that's people sort of gossip about, but about um, the, you know, the 1980s, you know, yeah. the, 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 the gubernatorial years, which I think haven't get, gotten a lot of attention. Right. Um, and you but, talk- yeah, I mean, he, you know, his, his success as governor is largely tied to uh, some of the things that Hillary does on mm-hmm. the education task force. And he, you know, he works out this new mantra of opportunity, responsibility, community with the Democratic Leadership Coalition. He's a centrist, you know, who is trying to give new kind of coherence to um, a less liberal Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he's very effective as governor. Um, but above all, you know, he's playing this game of simultaneously becoming a national figure and ingratiating himself with. Uh, other governors, and doing this, you know, what Betsy Wright describes as, you know, always being on the road and never reachable in the middle of the night hmm. because he's he's always with somebody, you know. And, you know, so he's basically, again, pursuing this bifurcated life. Um, and, you know, when he finally decides he's not going to run for president in 88 because Betsy Wright says that, you know, he's going to have to deal with the womanizing question and She's got a list of 30 people, and turns out he has a list of many more <laughs> that he's been with. You yeah. know, um, He basically has to kind of figure out how to deal with this. And, of course, Hillary's response is to be proactive and to try to you know, dig up dirt on these women. And you know, <laughs> you know, so I, What fascinates me is that she responds not by going after Bill, but using that as the basis for uh, suppressing these women and en- enhancing her own power. Yeah, and that's where this, you know, like what I thought was so good about this book is that, you know, then you sort of talk about how Hillary, you know, is able to play her hand, you know. Yeah. And maybe talk about, like, you know, this really is the personal and the political totally intersecting and talk about the first couple of years of the presidency. What happens is that, um, you know, when she she saves him for the third time in his political life, um, but even the, the most you know, until Monica Lewinsky at the most decisive time, is when Jennifer Flowers comes out with her allegation of a 12-year affair. And Hillary goes on television with him on 60 Minutes and, you know, does this incredible job of rescuing him yeah. uh, as he's plummeting in the polls by talking about how strong their marriage is, how much they love each other, uh, how committed they are to staying together. And, you know, she brings him back, and the, the payback is, is essentially that uh, she will become the quote-unquote co-president, yeah. uh, two for the price of one. Yeah. And then, you know, she basically um, um, exacts that, 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 that commitment. Um, and so 
I think that much of the way in which you see her acting in the first uh, year and a half of the Clinton presidential administration is her trying to make sure that her power is not eroded, hmm. but is solidified, and that she can proceed without interference to the, do the things she wants to do. So part of the way in which she responds to, for example, Bill Clinton's staff, whom she hates yeah. and doesn't think very, she thinks they're terrible, yeah. um, but she dismisses them. She also dismisses any critique of her health care policies yeah. from, from people like Donna Shalala, who's Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, or Laura Tyson, who's head of the Council of Economic Advisors. She basically stifles this kind of approach because she's afraid that if she doesn't respond that way, that she will, her power will erode. Hmm. And so I think that she solidifies her base. She has an incredibly loyal staff. Um, she, she's decisive. You know, I mean, she not only closes off the uh, White House to the White House press corps, that's saying that she closes the door so they can't go into the uh, White House to the press secretary's office. <laughs> but then she, you know, fires travel gate, the, the travel staff. Yeah. Um, she's basically acting in a very uh, decisive and, in some ways, politically dumb way. Yeah. But that's because she's also so, as is Bill, consumed by hatred for the Washington establishment. Uh, who she thinks are condescending, just like Ed Brooke was condescending, hmm. uh, toward them and thinks of them as a bunch of bubbas. <laughs> she hates Sally Quinn, um, who writes these articles about um, the Clintons need to realize that Washington is a tribe and you've got to respect our tribal ways. Yeah. You know, so basically Hillary basically accepts um, no compromises. She insists on getting her own way pretty much 100%. And that ultimately gets her into the difficulty of saying no when David Gergen negotiates this deal with the Washington Post um, that if, if Clintons will turn over all their papers from Arkansas about Whitewater, um, that they will give them a fair reading and if there's nothing there, they will defend the Clintons yeah, all the yeah. way down the line. And and everyone else in the White House says, yeah, it's a good deal. Let's go and do, do it. Yeah. And Bill says, yeah, but Hillary has to okay it. And Hillary says, nope, no way. These are my papers. And that, you know, leads directly to the call for the independent prosecutor. Yes. That person becomes Ken Starr. Ken Starr tries to indict Hillary, can't do it, um, but stays on the case. And then comes along Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky. Yeah, I thought I, I never knew that before. Maybe it's been um, reported elsewhere in different books, but I, I found that fascinating. And you, know, you, it, you can't anticipate it. That you, you know, she could not necessarily anticipate sure. what would what it would mean to say no. But uh, it doesn't take a, a huge brain to know that that's going to increase the demand for a full scale investigation, which is going to increase the demand for an independent prosecutor. Is um, I mean crazy? Please go ahead. Are you there? I'm sorry. No. Yeah. Okay. I, so do you think um, Hillary's um, missteps, is this just you know, as, as simple as this is somebody who never held elective office, who has a, a, at this time a, a kind of a tin ear? For, um, I, think it, I think it's mostly I think it's her fear that if she gives up on anything, she'll lose everything. Hmm. So I think she takes a very kind of us-against-them uh, uh, position yeah. and believes that any, any, any concession on her part will ultimately lead to an erosion of her strength. Hmm. 
I'm just curious. Have you seen? I mean, do you do you see this uh, pattern continuing in her uh, public life? No, no, not at all. I mean, I think one of the things that happens is, is she's so humiliated by the defeat of health care, or which never even comes up for a vote, yeah. uh, and by the uh, electoral results in '94 that she essentially begins to rethink a whole lot of things, and she clearly has lost her her central position of leverage. Yeah. And that, that's when she writes, you know, it takes a village. Sure. That's when she becomes more spiritual. Yeah. That's when she becomes more, more an advocate for women's and children's rights. Um, and then, you know, but on the other hand, she's the one who goes out and, and uh, re-recruits Dick Mars to come into the White House <laughs> yeah. and, and try to make the whole thing, you know, uh, right again. Uh-huh. I mean, if you, if you ever want to really think about uh, Hillary as not being uh, a hard-nosed politician. You've got to deal with the fact that she's the one who brings Dick Morris in in Arkansas, and yeah. she's the one that brings Dick Morris in uh, in 1994. Uh, you know, this is a this is a hard-nosed, very very pragmatic woman. Yeah, I know, I didn't know until I read this that she's the one who reached out to Dick Morris. I was like, yeah. I, you know, I was like, oh, Bill was secretly doing this late at night away from his staff, which might be true, but it was actually yeah. Hillary. Yeah, uh, it was Hillary, and you know, and and one of the things that I do say in the footnotes, and uh, uh, I don't say that much in the book, but one of the reasons I, I feel like I'm, I can write very knowledgeably, knowledgeably about Dick Morris is that I worked with him uh, for two years in New York City politics. Did you really? Yeah. Huh. Wow. Um, was... I, was, I was running a, con- a congressional campaign uh, by Ted Weiss, who was the first, one of the first anti-Vietnam War uh, people running against uh, the uh, Tammany machine. Yeah. Congress, and uh, and I, I was running uh, the West Side Reform Democratic Movement. Yeah, yeah. And Dick, Dick Morris was in college at that point at Columbia, and he had a group of young people around them. We called them the Junior Mafia. <laughs> and... Um, Dick Morris was brilliant in organizing his people to work the, the tenement, you know, apartment houses on the west side of Manhattan and have lengthy conversations with every person who lived there, take serious notes on those conversations, come back to headquarters, write individual letters to those people, hmm. and connect their interests and their desires and their concerns with that of our candidate. And they were fantastic. They were just geniuses. Wow. I mean, that's one of, it seems to me that's one of the, the less noticed um, um, stories about modern liberalism is, you know, these these reform democratic clubs in New York City, you know, yeah. really setting, kind of setting the stage for the new politics movement. Right. Did, did right. Ted Wise win? <laughs> well, uh, in the election that night, we thought we won by 316 votes. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the congressman, Leonard Farbstein, who we defeated, called for a recount. On the recount, we lost by about the same number. And the courts order the new election. Ah. Well, you know, a new election is different from a, a primary that's, you know, involving people across the entire city. Sure. Uh, and, and there are many, many different races involved. And so we lost the, um, uh, the, the special election. That, that's the seat that Bella Abzug eventually takes. Isn't yes, that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Ted, Ted, Ted won it for two terms, and then he died, and then, um, yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah. if if not for you, then there's no then there's no Bella Abzug, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not sad, but anyway. So, you know, it's been many years since I've sort of read about the Lewinsky scandal, and I've yeah. forgotten <laughs> just how sick of it I was. 
But then I reread it again, and I'd forgotten just, you know, I mean, you do sort of, you know, the big question is, did Hillary know about yeah. Monica Lewinsky? You know, but, I mean, in your telling, you know, Bill Clinton lied to everyone. And yeah. maybe just walk us through that just briefly. Sure. Well, basically, I think that uh, uh, whatever she was going on, the deepest part of her soul, she couldn't afford to know. Yeah. I mean, she was so invested. Uh, and she believed that their marital therapy in the uh, 89, 90 had really worked and mm-hmm. they become a different kind of person. And she she knew what the surveillance was like at the White House. She couldn't imagine the possibility of this affair taking place. Um not maybe remembering the fact that there were these small closets in the Oval Office. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I think that uh, she basically, um, not only did she uh, believe and need to believe his story, but I think that she essentially uh, totally stiffened his spine mm. on this. Don't, don't forget, when the story first broke, uh, you may remember watching Clinton on the Jim Lehrer report, where he's extre- he vacillates. He is weak in his answers, mm-hmm. and that's the occasion in which he says there is no sexual relationship. Yeah, now, there is no sexual relationship. Hmm. Yeah. It never was, never has been, etc. Well, you know, it's, it's it's the next day that she goes on the Today Show and says, "This is I believe my husband. There is no, there was no sexual relationship." But this is all a vast right-wing conspiracy. Yeah. And that essentially gives him no space. I mean, there was a, there was a period of time, about three or four days there, when Clinton was pretty persuaded he was going to have to resign, just like Clinton did, like that, or Nixon did in 74. Um, but, you know, Hillary basically uh, compels him to go into total denial, uh, which he does for six months, you know, yeah. having already asked Dick Morris to do the poll for him. Uh, on whether the American people would ha- would be willing to to uh, accept infidelity in the White House, uh, he now basically buys time, and th- that time is pivotal because uh, it, it essentially get, lets people get used to the idea that well maybe there was an affair, yeah. but it's okay, you know. Uh, and so he buys that time, and then when when finally the blue dress shows up and and the grand jury testimony takes place, you know that's the last time she saves his life. But as she does that, she also liberates herself to be her own person. Yeah. Uh, because she simultaneously is talking about running for the Senate in New York, um, and she's really becoming her own person again. And she's, in many ways, going back to the kind of consensus-oriented politician that she was hmm. at Wellesley and Yale. Yeah, I mean, this is... Um... I mean, this really is. It's such a readable book. I mean, I got to tell you, I'm going to sign this. I'm teaching a class on a oh, on biography next semester, and Perfect. this is, you know, I'll get you some book sales at least. Is <laughs> thirty book sales up in Western Pennsylvania at least? Cool. Um, cool. <laughs> and so, uh, this is um, our, our our general last question um, yeah. of you know, new books and politics. What's your next project? I know you're on the road. Uh, selling this book, but do you have yeah. any sort of ideas in your head about your next book? No, we're already working on the next book. Actually, the next book is, in some ways, goes back to my earlier years. We had a we have a huge project to do called um, um, Behind the Veil Project, where we did thir- over 1,300 interviews with uh, African Americans in 22 different communities in 11 different states, people who lived during the era of segregation. Hmm. 
and we are, are using those interviews as the foundation for writing a brand new, very revisionist interpretation of the age of Jim Crow, hmm. in which we are going to try to nuance the binary that exists today that portrays total white domination and total black submission yeah. and show how much more resistance there was, hmm. how much more community building there was, how what blacks were able to do and tried to do during the age of Jim Crow created the foundation for uh, the fight for civil rights in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Wow, interesting. So, okay, kind of post-war African-American kind of proto-civil rights movement? Yeah, yeah, but all, all the way through the 20th century, yeah. Oh, wow, So we basically, there, there are a number of us working on that, and with any luck, it will be completed in two or three years. Wow, well, you're making the rest of us in the profession look unproductive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this this is a this really is a first rate book. I'm you know Thank you. I, I you know took me back to the 1990s, took me back to my college years, and and yeah. um, you know and sort of the frustration with the Clinton presidency. Um, yes. Thank you so much for your time. Um, okay, well, I wanted, enjoy talking to you, Jeff. Very yeah. good. Well, I hope you enjoyed um, my uh, discussion uh, with uh, Bill Chafe about his book, Bill and Hillary, The Politics of the Personal. Really, this is um, a heck of a page turner. It's, uh, it's a fine book. I, I know I th- I'm going to assign it uh, to my class next semester so I have a chance to, to, to read it again. I mean, it really is an inventive um, uh, biography in a, in a a really readable way of, uh, of telling the history of the Clinton presidency. Okay, well, I hope you join me next week on New Books and Politics.